This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1238, entitled Weekend at Bright Burnies. Our podcast title today is Pod I am Rob Jan and Megan McHugh, our co-host, is off with the Andromeda strain today. All best wishes to her. And today's show, we are looking at Brightburn, the new science fiction horror superhero movie, which is... uh, We'll get to that. (laughs) Also, uh, I'll have a look at... um, a new DVD that I have just acquired called They Shall Not Grow Old. Yes, that's Peter Jackson's documentary about the First World War. Absolutely awesome doco. And other things today on Zero G. Right up the top of the show we had Charlie Marshall and the Body Electric with an album called Shiny and New and a track from it called Gravity Waves, which I thought... Um, might be appropriate for zero g today all righty now we are moving right along to all sorts of things today and the first thing is i noticed as i was coming in just uh, pulled it off the feeds that the avengers endgame box office mojo is now at 2.67 billion (laughs) dollars that's Pretty amazing when you think about it. That's US too, by the way, not um, not Australian rubles. And they are still gunning for the magic freebie and trying to um, surpass Avatar in the, uh, the biggest box office stakes. It's not a horse race. And... Uh, even if it was. <laughs> I suppose those eight-legged Asgardian horses would probably do quite well against the Avatar ones. You never know. Anyway, over to uh, Brightburn. Now, the idea of superheroes becoming supervillains, well, it's actually quite a common one. It's been peddled around through comic books and uh, television shows and movies for a very, very long time. It's actually nothing new in the genre. So, Let's establish that right now. But it's all in how you interpret it. And certainly Brightburn, the new movie, is more gory and more horrific than many of the other ones I've seen before. Now, just to waddle through some of the comic book inspirations for this kind of thing, uh, Miracle Man, formerly known as Marvel Man, well, that was originally created in 1954, Mick Anglo produced that over in the UK. And that was kind of a uh, one of those Captain Marvel clones that you run into every now and then. Before you could say Shazam, that ran on until about 1963. And it uh, got a reboot, a revival by Alan Moore in the 1980s. And let me tell you, the 1980s were a fairly dark time. We were clouded by thoughts of apocalyptic nuclear holocaust 
We'd never really thought that we'd make it out of the 80s at times. However, Alan Moore was there, and later on, Neil Gaiman as well, contributed to the uh, Marvel Man saga, which got turned into Miracle Man as there was a bit of a wrangling over rights. But anyway... This is the whole idea of um, Alan Moore. As you've read The Watchmen, you'll know that how it works, deconstructing the postmodern superhero. What would they be like in reality? Now, to be fair, Marvel Comics had already danced around with that concept quite a bit in their books. And indeed, some of that also appeared in DC Comics. But for your full-on nightmarish, empowered, enhanced individuals. The sort of stories that actually make you wonder whether those uh, superhero registration acts and mutant registration in uh, Marvel they actually make you wonder whether it's, it's entirely justified given the level of power that some of these metahumans, enhanced beings and indeed godlings have. Uh, in the Miracle Man story, one of the characters, because they had a whole Shazam sort of family going, um, there was uh, Mr. Mister Marvel, um, Mrs. Marvel, you know, the whole thing, the Kid Marvel, Kid Marvel Man character called uh, Johnny Bates. Uh, he actually um, got corrupted by his power, ended up being a sociopath and started doing awful things. Eventually, he attacked London, killed 40,000 people in the stoush amongst the superheroes, and they uh, eventually decided to take over the Earth, whether it wanted to be taken over or not. Mostly not, but still, things were all nice and mind-controlled. And that sort of story obviously has been used in other ways. Uh, The Dark Knight Returns, Frank Miller in 1986. So, Part of that story is a, a very empowered Superman sort of controlling things, not only for Metropolis but for the rest of the world. And in some respects, trying to do too much good. There's another comic called Red Sun, that's S O N, which is a nice play upon words, Superman's weakness. Uh, one of them, anyway. Um, and that was uh, uh, Mark Miller, not Frank Miller, but Mark Miller. And the idea of that one, which is very close to Brightburn in some respects, is what if Superman had been raised in the Soviet Union? Uh, and an epic tale that is, too. That's one of the finest what-if comic books I've ever read, Red Son by Mark Miller. And so on. There are so many different um, comic book interpretations of this. It's a favourite trope, uh, often used in what-if comics in the Marvel universe. What if Iron Man was um, Doctor Doom? Actually, they did that in a mainstream one. Uh, uh, Melbourne's own Tom Taylor produced uh, the superior Iron Man story arc where Stark was inverted. His personality was as evil as it could have been uh, developing from his um, early days as an arms dealer. Anyway, so much of those things being done and you can segue into films as well for example um, the 2012 Josh Trank film Chronicle which basically has um, where were they I think Seattle yeah Seattle um, some high school seniors who ended up gaining superpowers from what seemed to be a, a space fallen object 
And so, you know, they start out using their powers just for mucking around and it's all good fun. And then things go a bit darker and darker and darker still. It's actually, I thought it was actually a pretty good movie. And it was the movie that we sort of looked to when we were thinking about how Josh Trank might handle the Fantastic Four, which he did. And that actually, let's say, wasn't a great movie, but it did actually go some, into some dark places indeed. And I guess it could have been a film that might have worked in there, but it just didn't manifest on the screen. Over to um, Manoj Neliatu, Shyamalan's Unbreakable Split Glass movies, which we didn't know were a trilogy about superpowers when we started out, but they certainly ended up that way. Lots of people in there who are good, bad and ugly in terms of superpowers. And that constant examination in comic books and films, that extends, of course, to the idea that every superhero, for every superhero there is a supervillain. And you'll often find in the literature the fact that uh, the the villain will be um, a twisted version of the hero, often with the same powers for every Spider-Man there is a Venom, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Actually, Spider-Man has a lot of uh, (laughs) animalistic themed um, uh, nemesis, uh, the rhino, um, Dr. Octopus. Seems to be a whole thing with Spidey. Uh, You know, so um, that's just the uh, the basis of, of the universe. And Part of the way it works usually is you take a good man or woman and turn them bad or else you um, start out with uh, somebody who ends up basically having a super villain origin story and thus it is with Brightburn and we'll get into that in a moment. I just thought I'd prep you there. So I think um, Mr Bowie with The Next Day is the one to go to for this one. That's his album and the track is You Will set the world on fire. Hi, I'm Andrea Thompson, and I play Talia Winters, resident commercial telepath on Babylon 5. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R, and I know what you're thinking. Thinking that we've played our only Bowie track for this week, but you'd be wrong. And that was, you will set the world on fire from the next day. We are talking here on Zero G, or I am at least today, our co-host is away, Rob Jan here talking about Brightburn, the new superhero horror film produced by James Gunn and Kenneth Huang. Now, Mr Gunn, we know as screenwriter, uh, Tromeo and Juliet, uh, Scooby-Doo, and it's two sequels, the movies that is, not the, um, the cartoon series, uh, and the, uh, the reboot, remake of Dawn of the Dead back in 2004. And he also did that um, horror comedy film Slither in 2006 with, I think, Nathan Fillion was in that one. Um, on the area of superheroes, which I'm guessing is why he produced this one for perhaps another reason as well, which we'll get into, uh, he did The Specials in 2000, a superhero comedy film, and Super in 2010. And of course, he is the director of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies Guardians of the Galaxy 1, 2, and coming up with 3 as well, as writing the horror film The Belko Experiment. Uh, produced that one too and he is the screenwriter of The Suicide Squad the second um, 
one of those too. And I think he's also the director of that one. Jumping over to DC during that moment when he was dehired by Disney and now back again with them. Uh, another thing that I, I remember he did was um, something called Sparky and Michaela, which was about um, <laughs> a raccoon and a human being fighting crime together in uh, various environments, which shades of Rocket Raccoon and the Guardians. Now, Mr. Gunn has five siblings, including uh, Sean, who's an actor, uh, Matt, who's also an actor and a political writer, and three screenwriters, uh, Brian, Patrick and Beth. And they appear within this story too. Um, did I uh, find another one? I think there might I'm not quite sure, actually. Uh, all right, anyway, um, the film is directed by Darren Yaroveski, who gave us The Hive back in 2014. And that was a... Um, a science fiction horror film. And so he is now the director of this with uh, James Gunn producing it. It's also written by a couple of the Gunns, Mark Gunn and Brian Gunn as well. Uh, both of those have did uh, scripts for Journey to the Mysterious Island, um, amongst other things. So it's all being kept in the loaded gun here for the story of Brightburn, which takes place in uh, 2006. And, yeah, you'll be unsurprised by how the story unfolds because basically they're taking us through the origin story of Superman here. So if you're thinking about this story as Superman grows up bad, well, you're not too far wrong. Um, Tori and Kyle Breyer live in Kansas in the town of Brightburn. Um, They'd really like to have a kid, but they're having fertility problems. So when a spaceship crashes to Earth, carrying a young boy child inside, well, you know, they just figure that it's a gift from up there. Well, they're right. It's from somewhere out in space. Now, the boy grows up. Uh, and over time we will learn that he does have powers not fully activated until one day when fate steps in. I'm not really too chuffed with the way that they turn him to the dark side in this. It doesn't feel all that um, organic to the development of the character, and that's a bit of a problem. Um I'm thinking of uh, a similar story that kind of failed to land to put in any real pathos with the uh, the character when they changed him literally to the dark side in Star Wars, Anakin Skywalker's uh, saga. It just didn't work for me. Maybe it was because they hadn't really established that he was a good guy to start with. Not, not really. Um, so... It feels a little bit like that with this one too. And that, that can be a difficulty considering that this is a, a movie that kind of uh, ends, well, inconclusively. It looks like it's a big setup for a sequel. It may not be. It doesn't have to be, in which case it just is a standalone horror movie. But because of that, it feels like they actually could have spent more time developing Brandon, the uh, the young lad who's the metahuman or whatever the hell he is in this one. Um, 
interestingly enough, he is named Brandon, and I thought that was uh, a reference to um, Brandon Ralph, in uh, the guy who played uh, Superman Returns in 2006 and has since moved on to other superhero-related activities, as they do. Uh, Elizabeth Banks plays his mum. We remember her as Effie Trinket in the Hunger Games. And um, she was also uh, Rita Repulsa in the Power Rangers reboot back in 2017, as well as having dallied with the superhero genre in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. Played a character called Betty Bryant. She was also in Sliver as well, and her voice was quite prominent in uh, the second Lego movie where she played uh, Lucy Wild Style. So we also have David Denman playing Brandon's father, adopted father, um, and he's uh, he was in the Power Rangers too as well as that Night Stalker television series back in 2005. Basically they are the hard-working farm people um tori the uh, mother has a, an additional sideline in art and boy the farm they have is huge uh, really really vast construction i guess they build them big in kansas the barn looks like it goes on for miles and uh, that actually that makes a very good um, setting for this horror film and it's very noticeable in the cinematography that they they do like to stand off and give you the big picture so that um, it does mirror a lot of the uh, the sort of horror movies from the 80s and so on and slasher sort of movies um, where you've got that uh, unstoppable menace like uh, Mike Myers that sort of thing so that you sometimes see things from afar and you're wondering what you see and then you sort of go, well, let's not, um, let's not zoom in for the details because I think it's going to be fairly awful. And it is too. This is a very gory film and they concentrate on it whenever they have the opportunity to. So definitely not one that um, you're going to take the younger kids to thinking that it might be a uh, a Marvel Cinematic Universe kind of film or a DC film. This is definitely a full-on horror film. And uh, be warned there. Now, the the actual uh, actor who plays Brandon, Jackson A. Dunn, we've seen him before. Um, Oh, almost a spoiler there. I suppose it's long enough. But he plays... um, um, Scott Lang in Avengers Endgame at one stage, a younger version of Scott. And he was also in the Colony science fiction television series. Jackson A. Dunn plays Brandon, the bright burn of the title character. There's some very interesting costuming in this film too. Uh, they have to give him a, um, a homemade sort of uh, Peter Parker-ish um, outfit. He's spun this out of uh, a blankie and um, sort of a cobbled together hood and it's very effective too and yeah I can totally see this appearing as um, a costumed uh, uh, action figure and all that sort of stuff it's it's definitely there for that well his development as an evil doer instead of an evil donter includes unkindness to animals and harassment of girls and women. Um, yes, it's, it's uh, extraordinarily unpleasant, all of that, and, you know, 
it is part of the story. Uh, I'm very unsettled by it and disturbed after watching it. So again, um, a warning on this film, Brightburn. Does it work? I don't feel much pathos for the... Um, I don't feel that they've gotten the character where he might... where that in, turned it into a tragedy. Um, but then I stopped and thought about it after I'd seen it, after a few hours afterward and mulled it over and realised it's actually the story of his adopted family, um, of the father and the mum and um, his aunt and uncle and so on. If you look at it from that point of view, then really you are watching a horror movie with the the villain being a um, a super-powered slasher, essentially. So it kind of works on that level. This is one of those films I'll go, maybe, because I'm not really sure how to feel about this one. Occasionally you get that kind of one that, technically speaking, I didn't feel like it landed where maybe the directors were trying to go, but I actually think I might be misinterpreting the direction that they were trying to get to. So I'm going to leave that one open. So... If you are into the um, the alternate sort of stories, the what if Superman was bad, Brightburn might be a film that you might want to check out. Uh, it's in general release at the moment. Um, does it have an R rating? I will get back to you on that. I'll check that up. Okay, and this is um, a film that's just come out, so it's um, hot off the press. Uh, I thought... Technically speaking, they'd done fairly well in the um, the conception of the thing and the way they played it. Um, easily, as I was saying earlier on, right at the um, start of my talk about this, uh, easily reminds me of some moments in that uh, Miracle Man story where um, Johnny Bates is attacking London, that kind of thing. All right. Um, oh, yes, there's some cameos in this too with some uh, with uh, a person who you'll be very familiar with once you see him near the end of the film. Uh, and a bit of a nod and a wink to um, some of the other James Gunn superhero movies, but I won't tell you which one. Um, you have to blink, you might miss it. As far as I know, there wasn't an after-credits scene, but a lot of stuff is woven into the actual credits. All right, that's about it for Brightburn. Uh, zero G rating of, yeah, no, nah, maybe, as I said, maybe. Um, but not through want of trying. That does have some moves. All right, our next track here will be our second David Bowie track of the week. And this is from the album Outside. And certainly Brandon, the young man in the story, is very much outside. And he actually does look like Brandon Ralph as well. Uh, probably deliberately chosen that way. Now, this track is The Voyeur of Utter Destruction as Beauty, and this is from the Bowie album Outside. This is Neil Gaiman in the dangerous alphabet Zero G Comes Last, Z Waits Alone, and It's Not for a Thing. Yeah, and the thing in question there was Mr. Bowie there with The Voyeur of Utter Destruction. As Beautiful, from the album Outside. Actually, I find that track creepier than it actually sounds. But we'll move on now to They Shall Not Grow Old, which is a documentary film that came out last year and actually 
took it into selected cinemas and played it in 3D. Now, this is directed and produced by Peter Jackson of Lord of the Rings, Hobbit fame, um, King Kong, the one of the reboots of that, and many other films before that, which some of which I found a lot better than The Hobbit back in the day, Brain Dead and Meet the Feebles and so on. Anyway, They Shall Not Grow Old. And this is a documentary, and it's come out on Blu-ray too, by the way, but not in 3D, which is a great shame um, because, uh, oh, well, I suppose they're leaving something to go and see it at the cinema for. Um, this is uh, being created from archives from the Imperial War Museum's archives and also from the BBC's audio recordings of interviews with British servicemen who fought in World War One. Now, the making of this is actually quite important and on this single disc DVD there is actually a small uh, making of section where Peter Jackson explains it all. <laughs> and yes, he is famously wearing no shoes. We he thought we would notice, but we did <laughs> in this. Now, you've probably seen on Anzac Day roundabouts any number of documentaries about the First World War from a staggering number of perspectives and so on. But you haven't seen anything like this one, and this fits into Zero G's historical brief for today. The way they put this together is a astonishingly meticulous alright so you'll see some footage at the start and at the end of this where they bookend it with black and white footage not too different from what you've seen before in other first world war documentaries and then they open it out into the restoration that they've done and it is an absolutely staggering moment it's like that bit in uh, The Wizard of Oz where it goes from black and white to colour. That big a moment. And indeed, it is colourised too. Um, Jackson actually takes you through all of that in the making of documentary. Um, there's a number of things that they've done from the fairly simple, which is uh, basically taking the colour, sorry, not the colour, the, uh, the tone of the original footage, many of which has been duped several times and has been sitting in the archives for a very long time for a hundred years uh it's been picked over and it's um damaged in some cases and some of the footage is stuff that you haven't seen before because the television producers for other documentaries will go through and select stuff that they think they could use it's easy to easy to um to use and that tends to give you a bit of sameness to a lot of them. In this case, they've deliberately gone after footage which is too dark or blown out with light and they've done some digital jiggery-pokery and brought it back into the realms of astonishing clarity as well as obviously um, using filters to de-speckle and um, take out uh, stains on the film and other um, blemishes. Now... Alongside that, they've also had to do things like change, accommodate the different frame rates because this was all done back in the period between, you know, 1910 and 1920. So the cameras were hand-cranked, which means that the frame rate was 
quite variable, in fact, all over the shop. And they've managed to fix that too, as well as the change in speed produced by the films shrinking over time so that the sprockets don't quite line up where they should in the projector. So they've compensated for all that, which means it's gotten rid of a lot of that sort of jerkiness that you often see with period film from that era. Another thing they've done, because they've been able to blow this up quite large and enhance it to essentially widescreen, um, a lot of the cameras back then, well, they weren't moving obvious for obvious reasons are quite big cameras and didn't handle the vibration too well and other technical issues Uh, but because they're able to blow these things up quite large they're also able to zoom in on sections pan across it and so on uh, giving you a um, a more accessible kind of uh, film for the modern eye so all of that apart then they've gone in and colorized it now that's usually a controversial process in um, dramatic motion pictures in fiction fictionalized films and so on because if you go back and you um, colorize some old black and white footage from one of those films are you really in tune with the director's intent where they've deliberately and the costumers and the makeup artists and the set designers and so on uh, where they know that they're filming in black and white and have deliberately made artistic choices to make that work the best well that's a controversial process it nevertheless still gets done lots of colorized black and white films out there Uh, but in this case as jackson argues pretty effectively they don't have any choice if um the uh the um the combat photographers taking these pictures if they'd had color they would have used it i think that's actually a pretty fair call but in any case what he's trying to do is make this more accessible to modern audiences And so when it does open up, it is absolutely gobstopping. It's like watching, um, almost like watching some kind of uh, modern documentary footage shot anywhere in any of the awfully troubled parts of the world that people have been squabbling over for hundreds of years since that First World War and beyond. So I thought this is a, a documentary that, eclipses many others uh it's they've tried to do a sort of a generic um experience and it's very immersive i felt and it would be even more so in 3d uh and and again i'm kind of sorry that they didn't actually um release a 3d the blu-ray is pretty amazing in itself and this is actually um peter jackson's first documentary as a director and i think he's done a outstandingly sterling job with this one they've gone through like uh, hundreds of hours of um, original film footage uh, something like 600 hours of interviews of sound interviews and um, vision interviews with 200 veterans and a lot of this was done in the um, in the 60s and the 70s and before then so of course as far as i know there aren't any first world war veterans still alive in the world and so this this movie is a very special thing. It runs for approximately, uh, if I can find it, 99 minutes. And it can be heavy going at, at times. This is um, the, the, the clarity of, of the vision here enables you to see things that you won't forget. And uh, rightly so. Watching this, and Peter Jackson's grandfather served in the First World War, and um, Fran Walsh, who uh, works with him as a writing partner, um, 
her relatives were there too uh, and the film is dedicated to them um I kind of felt the same way. I had no idea because my grandfather never would talk about it either. Um, other things that they've done with this, and you could you could be forgiven in saying it, it gives you that um, immersive war experience almost as a voyeur, but it's very moving and very affecting. Um, along the way, they... Um, they get into uh, some really quite complicated um, ways of of, of of conveying things in this. Um, one of the problems is that back in World War One, the art of photography was still in its infancy in terms of um, cinematography, and people weren't used to being photographed on the move. They were accustomed to being photographed in stills where you had to stand still and so you could actually see um the soldiers being sort of chivied along occasionally to uh to get moving rather than just striking poses and the faces loom out at you and you realize how young most of these people were at the time and you stop and think that absolutely none of these people are alive now and that for many of them they didn't live through the war Um, There's one section where Jackson notes a group of crouched soldiers pretty much all got wiped out in the next 30 minutes after the the original footage was taken. Now, this has been done by Jackson's Wingnut Films, and they've funded it through the UK Lottery, lottery, as um, many of this type of film has done. Uh, And they've also also had a lot of difficulty um, trying to make it a sound film as well. Uh, what they've actually done in places is gotten in um, professional lip readers to see if they could uh, decipher what people were saying. Once they've done that, then they've looked at the the units involved in the fighting, tried to track them down to the regional areas that they came from in the United Kingdom, and then got actors to do the dialogue in those regional accents. In some cases, it's it's as simple as, oh, look, we're being photographed but other times it's it's quite revealing about the state of mind of the people. And all the effect of all of this unbelievable technology and concentration and meticulous restoration is that it makes it extremely accessible. Uh, and, and I think that's probably a good thing because it's so easy to make all of this stuff jingoistic and nationalistic. And here you are with this experience that is fairly generic. As I said, it's focusing on british soldiers but this would pretty much reflect the experience of both friend and foe and all of the variations in between so much detail in this um little things like uh one of the soldiers who wore a kilt said he was issued with a kilt but no underpants and also issued with instructions that he wasn't allowed to ride upstairs on buses when he was on leave Uh, it's an amazing film a documentary called They Shall Not Grow Old, which, of course, is uh, from the the poem, and it's directed and produced by Peter Jackson. Uh, If you're only ever going to see one documentary about World War I, this is one that you can't miss, really. And I'm quite moved by watching this. Many more things to talk about on that, but I'll leave that there for now. It is a... uh, a definite yeah in terms of um, zero g ratings now i 
didn't get any of the music from this one. I don't think the soundtrack's been written yet. And <laughs> really, I'm just going to go with a track that I picked out at random for the next segment of the show. And this is from the Guardians of the Galaxy Deluxe album. So there's two discs in this one with the original score by Tyler Bates as well as the uh, the awesome mix volume one which um, Star-Lord carried around in that uh, archaic and anachronistic Walkman that he had. But we played a lot of the Walkman tracks before. And today I think I'll go with Tyler Bates' actual score. And speaking of uh, brave but doomed groups of military personnel or policemen, depending on how you look at it, space police, the Ballad of the Nova Corps, an instrumental from Guardians of the Galaxy, the deluxe mix, Tyler Bates is the composer here on Zero G on Free Triple R FM. Hi, this is Corey McAbee from Stingray Sam and the American Astronaut, and you're listening to Zero G on Three Triple R FM. He does the things that folks don't do that need to be done. Yeah, and that was uh, the Ballad of the Nova Corps from the soundtrack of Guardians of the Galaxy. Tyler Bates is the composer of that. That's the deluxe edition with the two CDs in it, with the um, awesome mix and also the original soundtrack, which I actually wanted to hear as a separate um, CD because they just focused upon that Walkman (laughs) mix. And rightly so. It's one of the great soundtracks of the superhero universe. Now, we are looking at some... uh, Iron Man comics here. I thought it was about time I caught up with my favourite armoured Avenger. Oh my gosh, I was watching um, some Avengers Assemble cartoons the other night. Now, these are uh, basically created in the wake of the Joss Whedon Avengers movie. And so they they riff off a lot of the concepts and ideas in that. But not everything, because they are actually um, designed to stand alone. And there's like four um, seasons of that, and I'm watching the fourth season at the moment, which is kind of a combination of Civil War and a few other uh, story arcs. But basically they're um, benching the original Avengers in that particular arc and bringing in some of the new ones like um, Captain Marvel and Ms. Marvel and so on. So, you know, it's a bit of a tryout for the MCU in some respects. Um, but there was a, a great moment um, in one I was watching the other night where uh, Captain Marvel flies up in her spaceship, which is actually like um, a World War II fighter plane complete with propeller, but it's space capable and she lands it and uh, we find out that it's got a name, it's called Kelly Sue, which is such a squee moment for fans because it's like Kelly Sue DeConnick, the, uh, the iconic DeConnick, who's the creator of... Much that is um, potent and powerful in the recent incarnations of Captain Marvel, which flows over into the uh, the Brie Larson movie, of course. So that was just one of the many moments in there. Now, of course, Iron Man, Tony Stark, features prominently in the Avengers Assemble series, although at the moment he's um, lost in another dimension and can only sort of speak to the Avengers via a uh, multi-dimensional portal created by none other than Jane Foster. So, yeah, there's so many echoes in here of uh, what's going on in the MCU at the moment, plus some interesting variations. I really appreciate cartoons like that where they've uh, spent a lot of time uh, uh, giving you um, the feel of the 
of the, uh, the the material that it's been spun off from. Now, I've also heard that uh, Kari Skogland is to direct the six-part Disney streaming television series The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So this is actually going to have um, Anthony Mackie, the Falcon, and Sebastian Stan, the Winter Soldier, in it, as well as um, Daniel Brühl and Emily Van Camp. Daniel Brühl played um, uh, Zemo in the um, Captain America Civil War movie, and Emily Van Camp played Sharon Carter, who... had uh, is obviously a, um, a descendant of uh, Peggy Carter. Now, this is going to air in 2020, and um, well, we'll see how this plays because this is one of uh, many Disney streaming MCU stories that are actually going to use actors from the movies along with the uh, the Loki series, uh, WandaVision with um, the Scarlet Witch and somehow they're going to have the Vision in it as well. And um, the Hawkeye series and a couple of other ones as well. So they're really going to be pushing it out there. Clearly, um, partly because of the different uh, production streams running, it's tricky to coordinate the Marvel movies and the Marvel television series. And some of the assorted teleseries do reflect quite a bit of trickle-down from the films, uh, most notably the effects of the Battle of New York in Avengers, the, the Hydra infiltration of S.H.I.E.L.D. in, um, su- in um, The Winter Soldier and uh, Civil War. All of these have been seen, the effects of these, in the long-running Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. television series. And there was a bit of interaction between elements in uh, Agent Carter and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as well. We haven't seen much of a backflow from the television series so far into the movies. And Marvel probably does need to crack into that beyond giving a cameo to one of the television show characters in Avengers Endgame. The fans... Love that kind of thing. I love that. And it helps to create an even larger MCU and television universe. And it also serves to set them apart from DC, which has got a fairly messily uh, mutually exclusive movies, animated movies and live action television sort of universe going where actors are not playing the same characters uh, in in both. And it's, it's very hard to sort of keep it all in mind. It works all right if you watch them like independently of each other, though, I suppose. Uh, at least it did for me for Gotham. Anyway, um, so those six otherwise um, very creditable Marvel Netflix shows you've seen, um, Punisher, um, Iron Fist, uh, Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, um, you know, they're all, all there. Um, and Daredevil, of course, the flagship one, uh, and the Defenders um, team up, they might as well be setting another universe to the MCU, uh, tips of the hat notwithstanding. The big sticking point of those continuing, or some of the actors at least, will of course be that they're on Netflix and that they will now be in direct competition with Disney Plus streaming. So that's going to cause further complications. How will it all end? I just don't know. <laughs> Uh, right, now, not too much time left on Zero G for today, um, so I actually probably won't go into the uh, the comic books much. Um, Joe Brunatic is coming up next, but I'll let you know that um, Tony Stark still has his own individual comic book, uh, Iron Man 
which is just called Tony Stark Iron Man. It's a Marvel comic, of course, and they're up to issue number 11. Um, these stories, and this one's written by um, Dan Slott and Jim Zub with art by Valerio Schitti. And this particular story reflects many of the elements of the Iron Man comic book at the moment, a big ensemble cast. They're just wrapping up a story arc where Tony has invented this... Um, uh, virtual reality wonderland um, a, a sort of a um, uh, a game space basically which has been taken over by a character named the controller and he's used it to leech off the uh, the participants the players in this online game and empower himself to ridiculous meta degrees um, now this story as i said is an ensemble one which uses all sorts of characters in the newly formed Stark Unlimited Company, including a lot of AI robots, Machine Man, Jocasta, um, Tony's old suit AI, Friday, which actually has a body now, uh, as well as um, Tony's biological mother <laughs> and his, uh, his um, adopted brother, Sir Arno. So there's all sorts of things going on in this, this particular story with multiple characters, more than we've actually seen in the Stark Ensemble for quite some time. Reminds me of the old Happy Hogan and Pepper Potts days. Uh, Bethany Cabe, actually, his Stark security manager from those days, is uh, back in this too. Uh, there are some complications in this story. Um, Tony has to question the reality of his own existence in this, as well as whether or not he still is Tony Stark, considering that he thinks he's a clone and also has been... Uh, He's had his mind digitally rebooted recently. So is he actually Tony Stark at all? Oh... My heart, my arc reactor beats still. And that's about it for Zero G for today. And we wish Megan, our co-host, well. And hopefully she'll be back uh, next week on Zero G on Triple R. All right, now Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour. And we're going to go out with a track from Iron Man 3, my favourite track, which is the, uh, the main titles, Can You Dig It? And that's it until next week. I am Iron Jan. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.